So, quality. What is that? Everyone's responsibility. <laughs> I like that. So, I can think of like software quality as being two things. One is how bug-free an app is, like how performance is kind of in this category too, but like as it's being used, does it have errors? Does it not perf- does it not do what it was supposed to do? Um, include be fast enough. Uh, and second, I can think of quality as more of like a long-term quality. Like, is it maintainable? Is it easy to change? Can you have, can it evolve over time with new team members and, and still be maintainable? Yeah, I mean, I guess when I think of quality, I definitely especially think of the clean code like contributions yeah, being maintainable, testable and tested and like well insured against uh, refactoring. I just, I actually, so I, I, cause I was the one who nominated this topic and I, I felt like I wanted to, to do this topic after we did estimation because I feel that quality is what people sacrifice when they, you know, force the the Dr. Evil, I shall take estimates and turn them into deadlines. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of, uh, I've, I've seen a few teams where it's kind of like, you know, do it faster, but do it right still. And both those Is there such can't... a thing as that? <laughs> I haven't like, seen it. Like, um, change one factor without changing any other factors. That's not actually like how things work. Well, yeah. I feel like it's always a compromise. I think I said this before, but if you're happy with your code, you've probably over-engineered it. Like, you should always have that feeling like it probably could be better, but there's some time where it's good enough. You can just refactor and make it better, you know, seemingly forever. I mean, sure, but that time isn't like, well, I haven't written any tests, so, you know, uh, whatever. <laughs> like, there, you know, I, I do, I, I get what you mean, though. So, I understand where you're going. Yeah, and I guess each individual has a different, you know, threshold for that feeling. Even the same people over time. Yeah, I changed my mind on that spectrum, like, from year to year. Yeah. In different directions, too. Right. So I like Ward Cunningham's Rules of Simple Design, which I think Corey Haynes just wrote a book on. Uh, and those are up on his wiki. And rule number one is that it passes all the tests. And, you know, I take that to mean both automated tests, which you are hopefully writing first, and any QA tests. So simply, your software should just work. If your software doesn't work, obviously nothing else matters. Uh, the second rule is that it should be as clear as possible. So that just generally means name things well. Three is uh, duplication. You should not have duplication. And four is it should be as small as it can be. And considering one is a given and four typically redundant if you've removed duplication, I think like good design is just uh, making things clear, naming things well, and removing duplication, and not sacrificing uh, the clarity for the removal of duplication. Are you saying quality is good design, then? Generally, yeah, I think... I Maybe, think... like, quality kind of, like, naturally falls out of the these other three things. Like, if, if, you're, if you're making your code consistent and, and clear and easy to read, then it's more likely that you'll spot a bug by looking at the code. And if you reduce duplication, when you're changing things, you will have less things, uh, less often it will get out of sync. And I think those two things together would probably allow you to have a higher, you know, chance of, of having working software and, and, and fewer bug count. And back to performance. I mean, I normally ignore performance until we get some real numbers. 
And I think having a cleaner design will have less surface area for you to optimize performance. You know, a lot of people, there'll be the, a lot of graybeards who will scream about how many functions you're writing or you're not writing sort procedures. And uh, their, their wrath on performance will actually just increase the complexity dramatically. And I think eventually you'll actually have less performant code because you'll have code you can't understand. I've never heard the term graybeard before. I've heard neckbeard. Graybeard is, I don't think it's actually very nice to say. It doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> I think it generally refers to someone who um, has been like building software longer than you've been alive. Um. And so when you say like, so what about like, why don't we use like NoSQL databases? Um, some of those people, some of the people who call you an idiot uh, would be those people. Sometimes they're right. Yes. I didn't realize the term was not uh, politically correct, but most of my SQL DBAs literally had gray beards. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some factors that can affect, you know, the overall quality of a project besides like these four points? Like, I guess I'm more talking about like communication and team and maybe management style or planning style or anything else. I mean, I know that at some point I wouldn't, I would like for us to talk about like testing strategy. Yeah, let's, let's talk about it. So that is one of the bullets in there, but, uh, so pass all the tests, but then what do we, like, what, uh, what is the level of testing that we determine that we're happy with quality? And, like, what is the role of, like, the testing cycle and releasing code? Right. So Thanks. next week we're going to talk about why Rails is awful slash terrible. Because <laughs> <laughs> that throws a wrench in everything because people don't really TDD Rails, but from, from they my don't? standpoint. I don't think they do. And we could talk about why Rails is terrible, but <laughs> I think can, though. Well, I think ninety yeah. percent of the time when you're writing Ruby on Rails, and this is probably my biggest gripe for next week, but you're not really designing; you're just like implementing gems and throwing. You know what you're throwing in in every controller, so you're not really designing. So the benefits of TDD aren't as strong. But generally, my rule for hammering out the best quality is not to write a line of production code unless it's making a red test turn green. Yeah, so what about, say, end-to-end -end tests, though? I don't care about this. Oh, man. <laughs> what? Whoa. <laughs> that was a gauntlet. So speaking of, uh, speaking of spectrums, I've gone back and forth in this a few times. At one point, I was uh, a big proponent of, you know, every feature of the app should have an end-to-end -end test and you should be able to verify that the entire app works in an automated fashion. And I think that, um, I think that's typically unmaintainable, especially if you depend on third-party systems, like, you know, beside the database, things you can't control like APIs or other services. Um, I think that the time that it takes to write and maintain those tests um, can be exceedingly long and so long that they actually outweigh the benefit. Um, I think that having a quick way to deploy your app and use it in a production-like setting and be able to troubleshoot issues and find out where bugs are, I think if you do that and you're able to fix bugs with unit tests, and, and this is assuming your developers are writing unit tests, um, I think that the you, you can have... Uh, better quality software, as well as a quicker iteration time. Because, you know, end-to-end -end tests take a long time to run if you're interacting with any third-party system. And I've also been on teams where, 
we have end-to-end tests covering every feature, yet still the app doesn't work quite right in production. Um, and I, I think that the cause of it is, you know, too much of a reliance on whatever you want to call it, acceptance tests or feature tests or end-to-end tests. But I like everybody else's opinion too. It's such a hard argument to make because when you argue for less acceptance tests, I usually do like at least one or two just smoke tests doing the whole thing. But arguing against acceptance tests generally, like, yes, they are enormously valuable. And yes, if you ignore them, they'll probably be things they could have caught. But like Justin said, I don't think they're valuable enough for the maintenance cost that you incur by by having them. And that's dependent on the system. I mean, if you have just, you know, a simple database and not too many other dependencies and no, no crazy uh, UI stuff going on. Maybe it is simple enough to just write some some feature tests before you write a feature. But the other problem with that too is it, it slows down your your response time from your your tests. So most te- most projects that I'm on that have a large suite of acceptance tests, we just don't run the tests. We'll let CI run the tests, and we'll find out. A half hour after we commit whether or not we broke anything and that's too too long of a cycle so i mean i think that that's actually like i think you hit the issue i have that people do with an n is that i think an n is fantastic i think it's great um but i do think people do it at weird points in their cycle like at build time i actually find like that acceptance testing separate and separate and on, you know, either randomly or on some sort of schedule on just running a, like Sandy checks against production. I like caught, like find more random things that happen, uh, and then can gather more data about it. And that's where they are really valuable. So not necessarily running the acceptance test at build time and only at build time and then, you know, because the whole point is that hopefully you're testing your entire integration. So if, you know, you don't have to have someone watching the site to see that some something is going on because you have your acceptance tests or an end uh, watching the website, say, once an hour. When would you run those? Like once oh, an hour. Oh, I mean, that run. Sorry. When would you write them? When would you write them? I mean, ideally, you write them when you're writing the feature, uh, but I I haven't really been on teams that have full end-to-end test suites from the get-go. Um, but partially, and I, I maybe maybe it's actually not a bad thing because one of the gripes that people have about end-to-end testing is how how you have to go back and maintain them. If you're, but that's only true if you're changing the site a lot. So. Uh, so that's part of the, the great thing about end-to-end testing is if you build like just some some website and you set up end-to-end tests and have them run automatedly, uh, you can catch something that changes like you know six months down the road because maybe like some new browser spec changed, uh, and so the display of your website changed, and so you need to set off an alarm and go back and fix it, and so that's where they can be really useful. These um. These smoke tests against, you know, a running site, in your experience, have they been, are they usually like logging in as a user and, and doing user actions or are they just, you know, clicking around and checking things or? 
Like, like how, how, how do you, uh, I guess, mi- I guess, how do you minimize like fake data in production? Uh, oh, like if you give them like a fake user account and stuff. Yeah. And they start like making orders on your website or. Oh yeah. I mean, that's definitely at least like the, the one engineer I knew, know who wrote tests like that. Uh, I think he did have to have a test account and, you know, it's one of those things, it's just a trade-off. So if, if what I'm guessing what you're saying, or at least what I would say would be that that's kind of a criticism of, you know, it's not like a true, uh, random test, you know, compared to say like data analysis on someone's actual behavior on your site. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's mostly, I guess like you use the term smoke test. And so that's kind of the term to say, hey, let's poke around, and if it's super visible, then set off an alarm. Or look at the very visible features, and, you know, those are the ones that we need to make sure are working well. Yeah. And so I believe he did have uh, logins, um, because, you know, you had to be able to make an order, and da-da-da-da-da. So, like, because if that stuff broke, then you lose a bunch of money. So it is a mission-critical thing. Right. Yeah, it sounds like we're all saying the same thing, um, which is the parts of our app that we depend on, we need to trust that they work well with however we want to test them. And then we have some layer of tests above that that make sure that everything plugs together correctly. And like Pam said, like mission critical paths should probably have their own tests. One advantage of trying to avoid acceptance tests is wanting to test things at the, at the unit test layer. And by pushing it to that level... Sometimes it's hard to figure out where you can unit test it, and I, going through that exercise, uh, I think will just generally to better design. Like, where can I put the bulk of this logic in a place where it can be unit tested? So, back to your point about like writing tests only to make a, or I'm sorry, writing implementation production code only to make a test pass. How do you do that outside in if you're not testing every single scenario you're writing? Well, I never said it doing outside in. Start writing a unit test for something first. So you um, you kind of you know take a look at the site, figure out what you want to do, kind of imagine the path it's going to take, and then at whatever point you need to add functionality, that's where you write the test. Yeah, I think I get what you're saying. So you, the problem with not doing an acceptance test first is it's almost you know the BDD style outside in is almost TDDing your TDD. So you might start writing a class, start writing a unit test for a class, and then realize that you don't need that class. Yeah, exactly. Like, if you're not, if you don't start with an acceptance test, um, and specifically we're talking about, like, you know, browser interaction, like Cucumber or Copybar or something, uh, or whatever other, you know, browser testing framework in your language. Um, Yeah, like, how how do you do outside in TDD without that starting point just do the the highest level object that you're pretty sure you'll use and work backwards from that yeah, like, like in rails i like to start with controller tests i know some people don't like controller tests but i find that if they're doing any kind of um dispatching our logic they're very valuable especially later on in your app when you want to like add uh you know user authentication or security or you know billing or something it, it's nice having those uh those that framework of tests in place in your controllers to be able to start adding tests with like low friction, not, not to start from scratch, like stubbing your 
your current user or other things? I also like controller tests, but I let my controller tests hit the database. And that's because Active Record is terrible, but we're stuck with it, so whatever. Next week's episode. <laughs> yeah, there's there's many previews of next week. So point four in this says has no superfluous parts. Can we elaborate on that a little bit? What does a superfluous part look like, and how do you know it is superfluous? Superfluous. I guess uh, one thing that sticks out for me is sometimes, you know, as a developer or an engineer, uh, you know, I think some things are cool in programming languages, and sometimes, without even realizing it, I will do things just to do them because I know I can. Um, and that's usually a bad idea. Like, if I'm not solving something in the simplest way possible, I think TDD helps helps with this too. But if I'm not solving it in the simplest way possible, I'm doing like a disservice to the code base and the rest of my team. There's a uh, there's a quote. Uh, I'm not sure where it's from, but it's like if you if debugging code takes twice as much uh, thought or like you know brain power as writing it. If you write code in the most complex way possible, you are by definition not smart enough to debug it. Which I try to keep in mind when I'm when I catch myself doing that. Yeah, I think that falls in line with number two, uh, the number two rule of simplicity, which is uh, be as clear as possible. So I just saw something really superfluous the other day. I saw somebody check that something's null inside of an if statement, and then like three levels down, they like check it again, and then they check it again, and then they check it again. You really know this isn't null, right? You just already checked it. We're good. That's here. a good example of superfluous. And that's also something that would be impossible to write if you were TDDing, because you would write the first conditional, you'd pass in something that was null, uh, and you'd you know, after you had the conditional, that test would turn green. If you try to write that conditional inside there, there'd be no way you could write a test that was read. So that quote was from Brian Kernighan. I'll put it in the show notes. Wouldn't this also apply to, like, not leaving dead code around or making sure you go back and clean stuff up? Oh, I have a major peeve against leaving rollout code. Is that, like... If statements for like when this gets turned on. Yeah. That and then people don't go clean it up. So and how it you... just gets worse over time. I've never been on a team that did that, but I've heard of people like uh, GitHub and other, you know, famous internet presences doing that for rollouts. You how mean it... having feature flags? Yeah. You never have feature flags? Nope. They're awesome. I've heard they are. So how do you how do you go back and clean those up? Um. Okay. So this is one of the things where like this is why it makes me so mad because you push the remove rollout code the same time you push the rollout feature. You write it at the same time, so that all you have to do is merge the remove rollout feature when you're ready to remove the rollout. So you have a branch that's called remove feature X, and then whenever that's and they keep that up to date. Yeah, okay. and then you merge it when you're ready to remove the rollout. Because that's why it happens is because over time people lose context and they're like, oh, I don't know if I got all the places that this rollout happened. 
So don't even, don't even, don't even fret. Like just right at the same time. And yes, like because you are going to have that branch sitting there for a while, you might have to do like a fun, uh, merge resolution eventually. But whatever. I think it's better to just have it already written, uh, because then it's already 90% there. Some, some companies keep feature flags to turn things off, like for performance reasons, like. Oh yeah, I mean, there's such a thing as keeping a feature flag for like forever, but I mean, I'm talking about things where you're rolling out a, a new feature that is then going to be a, to 100% of users. Like, so if you're, say you're rolling out, you know, just like something that like everyone will get and they won't not get it anymore. Right. That's a very common feature. Probably most of the features. I find that when you have not found that even though you make the branch, you someone forgets or you forget. I think when something depends on the human remembering, it's always a, a risk. Have a have a CI job that just like in two weeks automatically merges that branch. That would that'd be good. <laughs> be evil, like well, hope you're ready for hundred percent rollout because <laughs> it's happening. So is quality the same thing as software craftsmanship? I think... Well, so... So these Ward-Cunningham rules that you shared, um, the Four Commandments, um, I think they fit more specifically into software craftsmanship and not necessarily quality. I think quality is kind of like overarching uh, because it also affects the end user like directly. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would categorize this software craftsmanship as, you know, as I said in the beginning, like one is like no bugs, um, which I guess, I guess is, you know, part of these rules too, is run the whole test. But then the other part is like how easy is it to change and work with for developers. And I think software craftsmanship kind of falls on the second point of that. Um, but I think the first point kind of also falls out from that second point. I guess then we should say what we define as software craftsmanship. So the manifesto, uh, which I also put in the show notes, uh, which is I think about like five or six years old right now. Yeah, 2009. Um, I think there's also a book in the early 2000s that also outlined some of this stuff. Um, But I I think it also kind of goes a little bit beyond what I just described and more towards like... um, as a software developer, being a little, uh, you know, proud of your work. And so, so the four points in the, in the manifesto are not only working software, but also well-crafted software, not only responding to change, but also steadily adding value, not only individuals and interactions, but also community of professionals, and not only customer collaboration, but also a productive partnership. So I think it just kind of builds on, you know, the Agile and XP manifestos to maybe be a little more targeted towards, you know, the individual and the team. Um, I don't know, Pam, what do you think? I mean, I think of software craftsmanship as uh, almost as that I would boil it down to the ownership stake that you feel like you have a responsibility to yourself and to the people you work with 
to build something of quality. So that's where I guess it, I do tie it to quality. So something that you're, that you're at least somewhat proud of. Um, something that you don't mind someone else seeing. Uh, something that, you know, when it's all said and done at the very end, you'll put in your display shelf because you, you're proud of it. And it's just kind of the, the mindset around software development that you're that kind of software developer. That that's how you treat software development. That it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit, it's like we talked about how people, how even though we are the kind of people who do stuff outside of our day job and really just like enjoy create like enjoy writing software that we do recognize this for other people it's just a job uh, and that's something that I, I always have an uh, you know try and wrap my head around that there are some people who just you know and not not in a negative way at all just like literally I literally do not understand um, like going into a job and just like well, I guess I'll write software today because that's an acceptable way for me to make my living um, and not really care at all about the outcome of what I do. Yeah, I guess... Um, I go ahead. Being a little critical of people there, I don't think anyone does that. No. I think some people are just not as passionate about it. Like, I'm not trying so to be happens. critical. I'm criticizing myself for sounding critical. Oh, lots of people do that, trust me. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it, that's, that's actually what I'm saying is I think that that actually is a thing and I want to, you know, I wish I could understand it because I do want to respect it as like, you know, people have different modes of living. So I used to be one of those developers back in our origin story, as I said, how I used to be horrible for like five years and then I learned my job could be better. And for me, I just thought oh, programming so you understand. sucked. I, under, I understand. I, just, I, I know what they go I through. I never understood it. If If you don't, if, if you don't practice your craft, if you don't do TDD, if you write some software that turns into a big ball of mud and every time you poke it, it falls apart, you're going to hate your job. And you're going to just try to whittle away to the day and get out the door at 501 and want to forget about the horror that is your code base. So I don't think I've ever been on the side of like not caring that much, but I have been on the side of like making things more complex than they need to be and doing a disservice to a lot of people. Um. But I can see how both are similar. So you cared too much? No, not, not it was not that I care, but more that I'm like uh, selfish or I guess naive about what was happening when I'm trying to over-architect something and make it more complex than it needs to be. I think that's also a uh, a form of of that. Um, I guess what I use as a barometer is think, yeah. Go ahead. Do you think that's craftsmanship or just that's a programmer phase. Like you go through these phases as a programmer, and you're at a certain point now where you realize that it's not about like um, complex things. It's the easier solutions, probably the best. I think that's just something that comes with experience. Either way, um, I doubt. I, I I don't know. Maybe, but I doubt I could have started. You know, programming day one, and then have that in mind. I think. I think there's a lot of other things that you have to learn along the way that kind of take up more of your mental bandwidth than is this clean and concise and readable? Like, how does Ruby even work? I think every programmer needs to get some framework they write themselves out of their system and realize why that's such a bad idea. <laughs> at least at least twice. So one one thing I uh, I kind of use as a barometer for, you know, like Len, you were mentioning, like, am I happy with this code or not? 
I kind of look at it and think about like, does this look like it was written by somebody who cares? Um, and sometimes I, I think about that and the answer is no. And I go back and change something and it could be like any part of writing it. Like is, is the, does the test make sense? Does the code make sense to my commit message? Is it clear? Or did I just, you know, hammer on the keyboard? Um, Katrina Owen has a great talk from a couple conferences, but I'll put the video from um, SCNA, which is uh, Software Craftsmanship North America. Um, she spoke there in 2013, uh, and her talk was titled Here Be Dragons. Uh, and I love at the end, she basically, uh, spoilers, um, talks about like every change we make where either she talks about game theory. And she talks about like how every change we make, we're either, you know, hurting or helping the project and the team. So, you know, she asks the question, like, are we, are we defecting or are we, you know, uh, I forget what the other term is in game theory, but help helping. So I try to think about that. Like whenever I make a change or, or do something on a team, like, am I, am I hurting the team or helping the team by, by what I'm doing right now? I mean, I guess you could probably, in, those, I don't know if those are actually terms in game theory, but you're probably thinking of, like, collaborating. Collaborating. So, like, you have an issue, like, if, you know, if, like, because basic, you know, game theory is if you have someone, if you have two companies and they're selling snow cones at the World Cup and they're going to be selling snow cones for five days and if they decide to sell, like, a higher price, both of them sell the higher price, then everyone makes all the money. And then, but if one of them defects and uh, starts selling the lower price, then the other one has to lower their price to match. Um, but for that, like, one day that they're different, the other one will have a massive profit because of people switching. Um, and so the thing that happens is you will always end up with the lower price. Hmm. Because you can, because you are, in economics, you always rely on rational actors in theory. When you're so, doing theoretical problems, right? So it's interesting so, that she applied like that kind of thing of like if you ha you have software people and you're on a team and I'm this is why I'm, I'm just you know guessing like if you apply this that you have a choice to uh, like so let's so let's say you have a choice to push the deadline or keep the deadline, um, like what what is to each player's advantage to do? Yeah, so, so. the it was, it was a different exercise in game theory, which sounds very similar to that called the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, but it, it is. But it I sounds... mean, in most, and most things in game theory, like even if you draw it differently, it looks like a prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. Like that's that, the, snow cause there'll be a Nash. Exactly like and such. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the two terms were defects and cooperates. And basically like, right. if, if you play the game for one term, the, the right move is always to defect. Just always like take the winnings right now. But if you ever play for more than one turn, then uh, it it benefits everybody for everybody to cooperate. And then there's like the middle ground where you are playing for more than one, but less than infinity. Yeah. So if you play for an infinite number of rounds, I just I just took a course on competitive strategy. So I'm into game theory right now. Is that uh is that Coursera? Awesome? Coursera, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really good. It's uh from a German university. So 
I'd highly recommend it if you are interested in strategy. So yeah, definitely watch uh, Katrina's talk. It's probably like my favorite in terms of slides. Like she spent so much time on graphics. It has like a video game theme. It's really cool. It's in the show notes. So I also had a slide deck to share from uh, Pi Danny. So Danny Greenfield, uh, Greenfeld, sorry, who recently, he's in Philadelphia this week for the Wharton Web Conference, and he gave a talk about maintaining, building maintainable and scalable projects. So, and you all made me remember it because in the, in the deck, he explicitly talks about uh, simplicity versus simple. Uh, so to be, be beware of simplicity, um, but think about simple. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, I'm trying to find the the point in the deck because it's Wharton web presentations are like they're really quite long, and so it's somewhere in the deck about simplicity. But I know that one of the examples is um, making is talking about NoSQL databases. Um, and just, it looks like it's simpler, but, uh, you know, that there are cases for using SQL databases. If, if, if it works in a spreadsheet, use a SQL database. If it doesn't work in a spreadsheet, then maybe you can use a, a NoSQL database. Hmm. So, but yeah, in his, in his deck, he talks about, ah, here we go. Yes. Avoiding database transactions is simplistic. So, um, so if you build your application to try and avoid database interactions because transactions are hard, then that's a, a danger in your maintainability. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, so I found finally, um, if you, for those following along at home, um, around like 63. So that simplicity isn't always the answer. Sometimes you need complexity. And one of the examples is the a valid reason for complexity is database transactions. And the note is that transactions aren't complex, but engineers often think they are. And, you know, transactions don't code solutions to handle transactions, use databases to handle transactions. Um, because, yeah, so that's an interesting, uh, interesting point. And saying that avoiding database transactions is simplistic because you have to build special workarounds to make things reliable. So kind of like like cutting off the leg because you don't want to deal with it, but then you have to to build all this other stuff to to stand the table up hmm. because you decided that it only needed three legs. I, I, does that metaphor work? I'm not sure. <laughs> it makes sense, but it's interesting. Or more like you have to like glue toothpicks together to make the table stand up. Yeah, it's like well, no. So it you know would be really hard to maintain another table leg. But we have all these toothpicks. Why don't we use <laughs> all the toothpicks to make what functions as the table leg? And he says that that when you if you uh, avoid complexity when it's necessary, that it's you know it's just bad design. Which I think we've talked about a little bit already about that we we definitely see a relationship between what we talk about as quality and good design. Sometimes I feel like it's difficult to feel as proud about what we think of as good design, especially when you're talking to like business people. Because if you have like the perfect code, even someone who's not a programmer should be able to read it. Kind of wonder like that's what you get paid for. <laughs> like my, my favorite rule of, uh, my favorite quote from Clean Code is the first rule of functions is that they should be small. 
the second rule of functions is that they should be smaller than that. Like you should make everything as small and concise as possible. And that does not look as impressive as like a hundred line function with like 10 levels of nesting if you don't really know anything about code. That you think uh, part an issue is that complexity looks impressive. Not not complexity, but um, cleverness. Cleverness does look impressive, yeah. Like, I could do this with a lambda. Do you guys have anything else to say about uh, craftsmanship or quality? It's good. It's good. So the statement is, I think I think we're pro. <laughs> we're pro, pro quality. quality. I am anti-quality, uh, guys. I don't <laughs> think that it's a good idea. Quality is dead. Quality is dead. <laughs> quality is dead. Next DHH new T-shirt. Um, qu- bad quality is job security. Ooh. If you just write awful things, they have to keep you on, right? <laughs> I hope nobody thinks like that. I don't know if they do intentionally, but from their actions, they definitely do. <laughs> when they're like, nah, let's, you know, let's not use any standard, you know, any standard patterns. Or I think I, I, I recently heard it, like someone made a me- note about this, about when people uh, avoid frameworks and completely roll their own and don't use any outside libraries. That is just like, you know, I know better than everyone else who, you know, than the thousands of people who use the standard library to you do this one thing. <laughs> like, it's it's, it's so a- arrogant. Or sometimes it's like they don't know that that standard library is, or I, I don't know that that standard library is there. And sometimes I'll solve something and then do a search and then realize, oh, that I could have done that instead. And then I'll delete my code and then do that instead. Sometimes there's nine to five developers. I mean, they don't know any better and they don't see it as a problem. They have that 200 line function, but they wrote all 200 lines of it and they spend all day living inside of it. So they know, you know, that, that geography inside out and they know where everything is and it makes sense to them because they don't, they don't switch code bases and they don't think about what the next person to look at it's going to have to deal with. This one related topic, I guess, for like keeping code concise is if you have something your code does, which is not core of your business logic or your application you know for instance in ruby you know split it off into a gem um and hopefully like your company or client or whatever is okay with you open sourcing uh you know whatever non-businessy stuff that you're working on but if you take that and, and move it outside the application and and make it a gem even an internal gem there's a clean line of separation um between your app and this other library and that library can be you know, tested and iterated on independently of your application. And then your application can just trust the public interface of that library to work as expected. And it, and it kind of allows you to uh, think about things in a smaller, in a smaller sense. Um, also, like if you're, you know, working in, you know, JavaScript, you know, write an NPM package or, or some other package, or if you're, you know, if you're writing chef cookbooks, you know, if you if you have to add something t- that the community doesn't have, you know, make it make it a community thing, or or at least make it an internal, you know, separate thing. I guess that could also be expanded to, uh, you know, breaking up large applications. So, do you guys want to do picks? Justin, do you have a pick? Not yet. Javon, do you have a pick? His pick is static. <laughs> yeah. God. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, we can the, hear your static, Jermon. The Corey Haynes book um, for understanding the four rules of simple design. 
Uh, you can find it on Lean Pub. Google Corey Haynes, Simple Design. Book. And I just ordered a mic. <laughs> and ordering microphones. Uh, Pam, do you have a pick? Yeah, I'll pick uh, the. I'll pick Danny's deck from Wharton Web. So that can go in the show notes. So I've been catching up on conference videos this week. Uh, so I will pick this YouTube downloader script. Uh, it's huh. just a little script. You can just give it any YouTube URL and download the video. And then you can use VLC to watch it and kind of fine tune the speed you want to watch it with. Sometimes you YouTube also... now gives you that speed. Yeah, but it's like, it's not as fine tuned. Yeah. It's like one and a half. And I don't think it does it as well as VLC or maybe. I don't know. <laughs> That's a criticism of HTML5 video more than it is of YouTube. Probably. Uh, but you can also, I also put a couple on my iPad and I watch it on VLC on my iPad. So. Uh, conference videos in VLC. Uh, Justin? Yeah, I'm going to pick uh, a tool for Chef um, and other other automation things like Puppet called ServerSpec. Um, I picked BATS in a previous episode, uh, which is a Bash automated testing system, which I still love and use for a lot of things. Um, but I'm now kind of converting a lot of my cookbook stuff to instead of using bats for testing using server spec so basically it hasn't it uses our spec and it has um you know objects and matches for our spec so you can say you know describe service you know apache it should be running um and the reason that this is useful over just writing like shell tests is because Sometimes different operating systems have different ways of, you know, figuring out if a service is running or if a, or the files might be in different locations or, you know, whatever. So it kind of abstracts away having to think about all that. You can just say the service should be running and then service spec will take care of, you know, figuring out if the service is running or not. And yeah, test your infrastructure too, not just your code. Cool. So show notes for this episode are available at turing.cool slash 11. 11. And if you have any comments, uh, you can tweet at us at Turing Cool. And uh, I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye.